0: from the front lines of the Green Rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is John Small, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. We've got a great guest today. Chris Ball is in the house. Chris is the founder of Ball Family Farms, the CEO of Ball Family Farms. It's a family-owned and operated business and the first vertically integrated social equity brand in Los Angeles. Quite a distinction. The company is black-owned and black-led, which is a welcome story in an industry that could certainly use many more people of color. And Chris's long and winding journey into the cannabis business is really fascinating. You guys are in for a really good story here. He has faced all sorts of adversity, but he has ended up on top and always bounced back. And now he runs this thriving cannabis company. So I want to have him on the show to talk, tell our listeners all about it. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brother
1: Small. And uh, thank you for that amazing intro you make me sound so much cooler than I actually think I am So <laughs> well, we'll see thank we'll you let, for that
0: we'll let people we'll let people be the judge of that after this all right so I want you to take me back well, let's talk back to like way back when in your teenage years right that's when you first got into quote unquote the cannabis business or that's when you first thought about it so tell, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and, and kind of like your introduction to cannabis yeah so so my introduction
1: to cannabis was when I was about 10 uh believe it or not And, um, it was to me, it was the funny smelling little cigarette that my dad used to smoke after dinner. Right. So every night, you know, he and my mom would eat and, um, You know, after we get done eating, we go over to the couch and dad would pull out this tray from underneath the couch had one of those round joint trays where he would break up the weed and the seeds would fall into the tray. And then he had his zigzags on there or whatever. So dad would always pull out that tray and he'd roll up his little little cigarettes and they smelled funny. Right. So back then, my mom smoked regular cigarettes. So I was completely aware of what they looked like and how they smelled. I hated them. But dad's cigarette was a little bit smaller and it smelled a whole lot better than mom's cigarette.
0: It's a positive association from the time you're it was young.
1: Positive association from a very young age. So then, fast forward to when I'm 16 and I'm in high school and I'm doing what high schoolers do playing football, into girls, got my first car. My cousin Earl was the neighborhood weed guy. Right. So my cousin Earl was always the guy, always selling the weed. And my cousin Earl was super fresh, right? He always had on fresh, brand new Jordans, always had fresh white t shirts. He had a nice uh, Impala. Cousin Earl was the guy, he was the dude. So, and I wanted to be like Cousin Earl, right? So I quickly figured out Cousin Earl, how he was making his money. So I asked him, yo, cuz, like, let me get an ounce, teach me how to break it down so that I can sell it. So that I can get fresh Jordans and get me an Impala too. So he did. And uh, back then, I didn't take it very seriously, right? I was I was not good at it at all. That mentality hadn't hadn't taken over my mind yet. So I think I probably broke down and sold half of it. The other half of it, I gave away. So needless to say, Cousin Earl wasn't really messing with me anymore because he didn't get a return on his on his investment on his front. I even tried to smoke it. You know, when he gave it to me, I went to lunch. I went to lunch with the stoners of high school and got high with them and got super paranoid and had to call my mom, tell her to come get me because I thought I was dying. It was really embarrassing. Really embarrassing. So that was it. So I put it down. So fast forward again to when I'm graduating. Now it's two years later. I'm a senior. I'm graduating. I'm 18 years old. My you know, I hadn't gotten a sports scholarship or anything like that. And my parents, we I was lower to middle class, right? So my parents had the tough conversation with me and they were like, Chris, you either gotta go to school or you gotta go to work, but you gotta leave here. You know, you're 18, it's time to go, right? It's time for you to go be a man. Well, I wasn't ready to go into the workforce just yet right? So I moved out of the house. I moved in with a buddy of mine and I enrolled in Mount Sac Junior College in, um, in Walnut, California. Well, got, went over to Mount Sac and at this time I'm out on my own, right? So the stakes are a lot higher for me. So I called my cousin Earl back and I said, yo, cuz, let's try this again, right? So, okay, no problem. But this time I made it work, right? I sold weed out of my backpack because I knew if I didn't, I was going to have to go into the workforce. And I still had aspirations of going to college, playing pro football, being the first kid in my family to graduate college. Like I had all these dreams and I knew that's what I wanted to accomplish. So he gave it to me and I made it work, you know, and it's how I paid my tuition. It's how I bought my books. It's how I put gas in my little Volkswagen bug and how I put food in my stomach for the next two years until I got my scholarship, my full athletic scholarship to Berkeley. It's amazing.
0: So, were you worried during this time doing it illegally like that out of your backpack? Did you ever have concerns that you were going to get arrested or did, did was it sort of not, was it a gray area at that time in California? Like it was kind of cool.
1: It definitely wasn't a gray area. This is 1996 and 97. So it definitely was not a gray area. I definitely had fears. I was very careful. And, you know, when you're doing, when you're, when you're, it's, I guess it's kind of different growing, doing, selling weed at, at a high, at a high school level it's pretty, you're pretty, you're probably going to get narked on, right? You got your lockers and you're in high school. Somebody's going to say, somebody's going to get caught and tell. In junior college, you know, everyone was a little bit older. Kids were 21, 22. They're old enough to drink. So there, there weren't no lockers in junior college. You carried your books with you, you carried them back to your car and you left. So I never really ventured off of campus with it. You know, it was kind of like a campus thing for, you know, the people who wanted to smoke on campus. And so, but yes, I was afraid of getting caught and afraid that I was going to, you know, kind of screw my life up completely if I went wind up going to jail or getting kicked out of school for selling weed. But I made it work, man. I I kept my head down. I I stayed quiet. I I dealt with a certain clientele. I didn't really venture out and
0: um, I made it work. So all this time, are you smoking weed at this point? Because you said you had a bad experience Absolutely not. Yeah. So you were really an athlete keeping your system clean. Yep.
1: Yep. I actually, I didn't even really drink too much uh, during those years. You know, I was a very bougie athlete. You know, I was really concerned with what I was putting in my body. I wanted my body to be able to perform at the highest level because I wanted to get a scholarship to a major university that I could compete in, you know, at football. So I I never touched it. It actually made me a better salesman (laughs) because I always had extra weed that I didn't get high on
0: your on your own supply. (laughs) <laughs> didn't
1: get high on my own supply, right, but as rule Biggie says, one. "Yeah, rule number one. Yeah. Rule number one."
0: <laughs> okay, so so you get the scholarship. You got the scholarship to, to Berkeley, and you're playing. And you played football at Cal, right?
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I got my full. I got my full scholarship, my full athletic scholarship, and I wind up being there three years. And I played. Uh, I I redshirted my first year and then played two seasons uh, after that at Cal.
0: That's amazing. And and you were a linebacker, so you were you could you could hit hard and you were fast and. That kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I was, I was, a I was a outside linebacker slash strong safety. So I was a very aggressive guy. I was about 200, I was 6'3", 215 pounds, you know, two, two, I was pushing 220 on my, my last year. So I was getting after it. I ran a 4'5", 40. So I, I was getting after him out there.
0: So you tried out for the NFL, right? Um After you graduated.
1: Yeah. So I graduate and then I go, go in as a free agent with the San Francisco 49ers. And, um, I wind up getting released and, uh, during the off season, they sent me to NFL Europe. They're like, listen, Chris, you got a tremendous ability, tremendous upside, but you need to develop just a little bit more, you know? So we're going to send you over to NFL Europe. So I said, okay, cool. So they sent me over to NFL Europe. I go, uh, I land in Berlin, Germany. I play a season and I was supposed to be there for two seasons, right? But I play one season for the Berlin Thunder in Germany and I come back or, you know, when you come back from NFL Europe, you get to go into training camp because right after you finish that season, the NFL season is starting. So you go into training camp uh, with the NFL. So I was waiting uh, for a roster spot. You know, it was out of um, the Chiefs and I think it was out of the Ravens, if I'm not mistaken, a long time ago. And so I'm waiting for that call. And as I'm waiting for the call to go report for camp, I get a call from the Canadian Football League. And the CFL is offering me a three-year deal where I'm going to start and play, right? You're the starter. So, I just at that point, you know, the NFL hadn't called back yet. So, I was, you know, as a young guy, I was anxious and antsy. So, I was like, you know what? If they don't call, I'm going to miss this opportunity to go play. So, I said, forget it. You know, I'm just going to take this deal. I'll go spend three years in Canada and then I'll come back to the NFL or I'll spend two years. I, I set up my contract to where I could leave anytime the NFL called. So I went out there to uh, Vancouver, to British Columbia, Vancouver. And this is where, bro, I, I saw weed being grown from seed to sale for the first time.
0: And that was at the time. Was it legal in Canada? That's, that's a while ago. And, we, you know, it's not. Yeah,
1: it was a while. I think it was medicinal. And there. no, I'll take that back. It was It there was some rig to it because. There were. I remember being out there, and there, when you would go to a restaurant, they had little smoking areas, and people were smoking weed in these areas. You know, it wasn't a cigarette thing; they were, they were smoking, they were smoking the reefer.
0: So that made a big impression on you, right? Like to see it.
1: Yeah, absolutely,
0: absolutely, one hundred percent. Because
1: I'd never seen it grown before. I had a, I had only middlemaned it, you know what I mean? I had only gotten it from my cousin and then put my, put my dollars on it and then resold it. I'd never seen the process up until that point.
0: Did you start growing it yourself at that point? No. So what happened was a buddy, one of my teammates,
1: um, his girlfriend's brother had a grow. And so, you know, when we would, um, after practice and during the season, you know, we were so fascinated by that. We, he would let us come over to the grow and he would just show us, you know, we got to watch it go from, from clone to harvest. And, you know, Something real important about my story is that back then weed was sold um, in Canada for about 800 bucks a pound. Well, that same weed was selling in the United States, in Los Angeles, for about thirty five hundred dollars a pound. Right. So what do we do? Right. I'm ai am I had already kind of started my cannabis entrepreneurial ship back before I got my scholarship. Right. So what we would do in the offseason over in Canada is that we would you know, we would pack up you know, we would use, well, I'm not gonna, I won't get into how we were doing it because I don't know if guys are still doing it. So I'm going to keep that to the culture. Right. But we would, in the off season, we would supplement our income by, you know, packing up the product, hopping the border, getting it across the border and then getting it down to Los Angeles, you know, and making, you know, 2000 to $2,500 per piece that we got. So down you there.
0: would cross the border with the weed in your car somewhere or, or however, or would you give it to other people?
1: Absolutely. I was trafficking it in a way. I'll just say that. Yeah. I was
0: trafficking it. And at some point this catches up with you, right? You get in trouble. I don't know if it was for this exact thing, but you kind of got associated with somebody that got you in trouble.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So that, this went on for a couple years. And as you can imagine, the economics of it all is that once I got the product down to Los Angeles, I just undercut the market. Right. So if it was going for thirty five, I was selling it for three. And so what did this do? Right. It I started taking people's clients. I started taking customers. I started becoming very, very popular. I started making a name for myself. And eventually you do that long enough to where you start touching other guys who have made a name for themselves. And then you don't realize that, you know, the feds, the FBI, they're watching all of those guys. So that's what happened to me. I wind up getting so big that, you know, I got in business with another really big guy and it just so happened that he was being uh, monitored by, by the feds two years prior to when I met him. So uh, six months after our working relationship, the feds came knocking at my door and the indictment came down and I was wrapped
0: up in it. That must have been pretty terrifying at the time.
1: Uh, That was probably the scariest moment of my life uh, that I had experienced up until that moment. And I dealt with some pretty scary shit. You know, I've been robbed. I've dealt with a few when it comes to the business. But um, that one by far takes the cake. That has the trophy. That's in first place. When that phone call came across my cell phone and it was all zeros, they it was all zeros. I'd never seen that before. I've seen block call. I've seen weird numbers. Never seen all zeros. So when I answered the phone, (laughs) I didn't know that that was possible, right? (laughs) But when I answered the phone, and this guy's on the other phone said, yeah, Chris Ball, this is such and such from the Drug Enforcement Agency. I said, what? From who? What? Who? What? I said, you sure you got the right number? I think you got the wrong number, bro. He said, no, no, no. I I got the right number. I know who I'm looking for. I said, oh, no.
0: Oh no! Here we go. Anybody listening to this, if if you get a, you see zeros on your phone, you might not want to answer that call. Don't answer that. <laughs> you yeah, might. You that. might want to send that one right to voicemail. So to skip ahead here, you do get a cannabis conviction. You're able to kind of, to kind of, um, to get to to, to reduce the sentence a bit, right? How long did you actually spend in in prison for this?
1: I spent about a month and a half in federal prison, right? I spent about a month and a half. I was looking at a 10 year mandatory minimum. I wind up pleading out, you know, once I, once I got bailed out, my brother, Charles, who's now the CFO of Ball Family Farms, put up his condo to get me out. And once I got out, I signed a deal. I signed a plea deal for uh, 30 months, for three years. And so, um... That was that. I spent a month, and uh, my lawyer—thank God—I had a really good lawyer because my lawyer worked out a a plan with the judge that, as long as the indictment was uh, ongoing, that I didn't have to report to do my three years until the case was done, until everyone had got handed down their time, and it was time for all fourteen of us to report for sentencing. Right. Well, some of them were already in because they had prior, so they didn't even they they couldn't get out. They could. The judge didn't give them no bail. But I was able to get bail because it was my first offense. So I was on the outside while, you know, a couple other guys fought the case and um, they fought the case for four years. And in that four years time, you know, the strategy behind it, my lawyer was like, listen, while you're out, I'm going to need you to not get in one ounce of trouble and I'm going to need you to get a job. Right. We're going to try to use this time to butter up the judge to try to get you time served. Now, we didn't think that, we didn't know that it was going for so long, but my my lawyer was like, if you get a good enough job and you pay your taxes, at least if we're out here for a year, then we can cry to the judge, hey, he's rehabilitated Don't make him go into prison. You'll screw his life up. Now, yeah, I quit back out and and start over. So that was the strategy. And it just wind up working out because they fought for so long. I wind up holding a job for four years, two years with Abercrombie and Fitch and two
0: years with Nike. Right. So let's talk about that because that's an interesting part of your story because you, you here, you are, you're this big linebacker, you've played in the CFL, you know, you've played for Cal, you're, you're a big man on campus. And then you, you know, find yourself folding clothes at Abercrombie and Fitch with like 20 year olds. Right. And you're like in your, I don't know what, how old are you? So that's this is a tough time. I'm for you.
1: 32, 32 years old, folding clothes with these 18 year olds, bro. It was humiliating. I think this part of my journey is what is it taught me a lot. Right. I got to eat a lot of humble pie because before then, you know, I'm a I'm an athlete. I'm a drug dealer. Like you said, I'm big man on campus. My shit don't stink. Right. And then I find myself in federal prison with nothing, right? Where I'm like, what, how the fuck did I get here? And then, you know, I come out and I get a job and I'm working
0: retail in a mall with children. Shirtless, sometimes shirtless children. Shirt, sometimes shirtless children, bro. <laughs> like, I know, the... I know like, those Abercrombie geez, and Fitch stores.
1: Man, it was, yeah, it was a very humbling experience for me. And I, I wouldn't say, cha- I hated it at the time, but I wouldn't take it back or change it for the world, because it taught me humility and it taught me a different type of work ethic, right? I never really dealt with the American people on a daily basis up until this point in my life. You, you know, I've been kind of sheltered. I've been in playing sports. I've been in college. So there's higher learning of education. There's different individuals I'm dealing with. Then you go to the league, you go in the NFL and, and you CFL. And so i never had to deal with the American people, right? And so when you work retail, man, it changes you. If anyone is listening to this right now and they work a retail job, they understand what I'm talking about. It will test your patience. It will test your ability to communicate because you don't you never know who's going to walk up to you and how they communicate or what they've been through or how their day's going. So, it taught me a lot. A lot of the skills I learned working for Abercrombie and also working for Nike. I've applied, you know, to Ball Family Farms and just being a CEO and dealing with different people.
0: Right. Customer service, right? Dealing with difficult
1: people. Customer service. Absolutely. Marketing, branding. You know, I, I learned from one of the best in the game. Abercrombie & Fitch was one of the best branding companies in the game, if you ask me. They did a terrific job of pushing the envelope and creating branding on a different level, on a
0: different scale. And you also worked at Nike. would talk about their legends of branding. So, bro, yeah. That, that goes without saying. All right. So... What's interesting is, you know, you would think after what happened to you with cannabis and having to go to prison and stuff that you might want to stay away from the plant at that point. But the timing is fortuitous, too, because by the time you're working at Abercrombie and Fitch and Nike then Prop 15 is happening and there's all sorts of cannabis is becoming legal in California slowly. Right. And, and, And so you decide to get into it. I was I'm curious why you decide to go back into it. Because I guess you knew it really well, the business really well.
1: You know what happened, bro, is that as I worked, Abercrombie was humiliating, right? But I learned something from there. When I got to Nike, I thought that Nike would be my end-all be-all. I was like, you know what? It doesn't get any better for you, Chris. You've got in with this company, you're an ex-athlete, you love this brand, you're running the NFL department for them, all, you get to wear shorts and tennis shoes and talk football all day. This is where I'm just going to stay here and I'm going to elevate and go, go vertical in this company. And what I found out, man, is that corporate America just wasn't for me. As an inner city kid, as an athlete, I've been on sports teams my entire life. There's a sense of camaraderie there and there's a sense of family there that doesn't exist in corporate America. Right. So I I didn't really I couldn't understand some of the things that I heard and saw while I was working in corporate America and why people behaved a certain way. And I was just like, you know what? This is not for me. I don't feel good here. I don't feel comfortable here. You would think I would, but it just wasn't for me. And so once Prop 215 rolls around, my wheels start turning. How can I get myself back into the space? Right. So once once the four years was up, once I went back to report for sentencing and the judge looked at me and saw that I had been paying my taxes for the past four years, had saw that I hadn't gotten one ounce of trouble. The judge, in fact, gave me time served and made me a free man. So now I'm done with the case, right? So now I can go back and touch cannabis. A week later, brother, I went back to Nike, quit my job, took all my savings, moved back to Los Angeles and bought my first 14 light growth in Van Nuys, California.
0: That's awesome. Which is where we find you now driving your car. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, where I was, which is where I just left from. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. So that must have been interesting. So during that time, is that the the origin of Ball Family Farms? Is that when Ball Family Farms actually starts or is it, are you just kind of on your own at that point?
1: No. So it's Ball Family Farms doesn't start for still two more years. Right. So actually three years. So I get back, I get to grow. Right. But remember, I've never grown before. So I spend the first year burning up plants, trying to figure the shit out. And so um, after the first year, you know, something finally clicks and I finally start getting through my harvest. And now at this point in year two, now I'm starting to be able to take my little products and go to my boys, Prop D compliant shops and be a caregiver and, you know, sell them product for their patients. Right. Well, once after this, this goes on for about for about two years. But on my third year is when I really started to get good. I started to get good at it. I started to understand cultivation. I've made every mistake you could possibly make. And um, during my third year, now we're in 2018. And this is when my partner, actually my landlord, who was the landlord of the building that I was growing in, told me about the social equity program. Now, at that time, I didn't believe it. I was like, there's no way. The, uh, the city or the state is going to give a license to uh, a convicted felon that's been charged with the distri- distribution of 2,000 pounds of, of cannabis throughout the United States. I'm like, there's no way they're going to give me a license. But sure enough, I went down to city hall, sat in, in a couple social equity meetings, got the information applied, and two months later, got an email congratulating me telling me I was awarded a license. And that was the day Ball Family
0: Farms was born. See that. So, so for people who don't, and I don't think there's too many people listening who don't really totally understand what we mean by social equity programs, explain i mean how what you know your past in some ways assisted you in, in getting the business off the ground
1: yeah so so the social equity program basically is a program that's being uh, the licenses were being awarded to people who have been negatively impacted by the war on drugs right so this means if you are you know you have a cannabis conviction or a drug conviction if you live in a, a disenfranchised area, you know, of the city or the community that drugs has plagued that city, or if you're related to someone who's possibly been to jail or, or something like that. So they had three different tiers, tier one, tier two, tier three. Tier one was actually if you were the person convicted. So I qualified under uh, tier one. And so that's pretty much what the license meant. It was the city's way of trying to give back or give the people who have been negatively impacted a chance to rehabilitate themselves in a now legal framework of this
0: business. So you end up hiring actually a lot of family. It's called Ball Family Farms for a reason, because it's your tell us who who works under in your company at the top level.
1: Yeah. So at the top level, my, my middle brother, Charles, is my CFO and an equity shareholder. And then my cousin, Mikey, is our facilities manager, which is my uncle's son. He's our facilities manager and also an equity shareholder
0: as well. Now, why did you decide to keep it in the family like that?
1: Just because of everything I'd gone through in the street from being robbed by people very close to me by... Not wanting to have to really watch my back is the reason why I kind of went after my family. Another reason why is that when I got my first, when I got that first 14 light grow, I brought in my brother and my cousin to kind of help me run that grow. So they were with me before we actually got the license. I, you know, I wanted to be able to teach it to someone else because I was like, listen, if we're going to do this the right way, I can't be the grower. I can't be the face. I can't be the CEO. I can't be the operator. I have to start kind of delegating these responsibilities if we were just going to make the Prop 215 situation work. So as I'm teaching them, I figure like, you know, if I can duplicate myself a couple times, then I can be in two or three places at one time. And now we have a chance. I have an opportunity to actually do something because in my head. I was going to make make a living and help my family out just by selling to these property compliant shops. Why? When it went, when Prop 64 passed and it went wreck, I'm like, oh, now we really have a chance. You know, and once I got the license, I was like, now you done really fucked up because you should have never gave me this opportunity because I'm going to make
0: this work. <laughs> All right. So Ball Family Farms, tell me a quick pitch of what you guys, you know, what is the products that you Put in the marketplace. Where are you available?
1: For sure. So right now we're we're predominantly a flower brand. We have uh four strains currently on the market right now. Our Daniel LaRusso strain,
0: named after karate kid, Ralph Machado. Yeah. Named
1: after Ralph Machio, the karate kid. We have Brown, named after uh the legendary Wesley Snipes in New Jack City. We got Dragonfly Jones, named after the famous comedian Martin Lawrence. That's a shout-out. That's paying homage to his 90s uh, sitcom, The Show Martin. And then we have Laura Charles, which is named after Vanity, who played um, Laura Charles in the in the the, the 1987 classic movie
0: uh, The Last Dragon. Okay. So you obviously have a lot of movies that have played a big role in your life. <laughs> Why did you decide to name that after all your favorite characters, movie characters? You know what? I wanted
1: to do something different. I wanted to go against the grain. I wanted to set Ball Family Farms apart from anything and everyone else in the space. So when everyone was naming their strains after foods and fruits and ice cream and all these different things that you can eat, I decided, you know what? I'm gonna I'm going to go against the grain. I'm an outlier. So let me name it after, you know, one of my favorite movie characters because I'm a movie buff. I watch movies all day, every day. Daniel LaRusso seemed fitting because he was an underdog, you know, New Jersey kid moving from Reseda going up against this conglomerate of Cobra Kai. Chris Ball, inner city guy, black grower going up against this conglomerate of the bros weed industry. So I felt that it was fitting.
0: I like it. And you're available in California and recently in Oklahoma?
1: Yes, sir. So we're available in about 150 retail locations in California. And then we just, we're building out our first MSO, which is a multi-state operation in Oklahoma. It is not up and running yet. We are halfway done with the build, but we should be available by the summer of 2022.
0: It's amazing. So tell me a little bit, because you are a a success story, a rare success story of the social equity programs. You know, you you hear a lot in the media about how it's not really working out. It's not going as people thought it was going to go. It has obviously very noble intentions, but it's not really panning out. And I know there are a lot of criticisms. I'm just curious what you think the government has gotten, is getting wrong about it. So that maybe in states, where cannabis is about to become recreationally legal, like New York, et cetera, they can get it right this time because California made a lot of mistakes.
1: Yeah. So there's two things that are crippling our, our social equity program. The first thing that's crippling it is the resource factor. And I make this analogy all the time. If the government wants to get it right, they need to use the same format that they do with scholarship athletes, right, that go to college, The scholarship athlete goes to college. They give them a scholarship. That scholarship admits them to the school. The next thing that happens is they give them all these resources, a tutor. They give them priority registrations. They feed them three times a day. They do all these things to help the kid, the student athlete, be successful, a mentorship, right? Well, that's not happening in the social equity program, right? We're getting the license, but the social equity applicants aren't getting the resources. They aren't getting the priority registration. They aren't getting the mentorship. They aren't getting the financial aid. They aren't getting fed three times a day. So that's the first thing. The resource factor needs to be readjusted so that you offer these applicants resources to get their business off the ground and be successful. The second thing that's wrong is the taxes. The taxes for a social equity applicant and the taxes for the cannabis industry are out of control already as it is, right? It's doing nothing but reinforcing the black market. But especially for the social equity applicants who don't have the money, who don't have the business, they should not even be charged taxes until they can make a profit because because I'm paying 40% in taxes right now and I'm a successful cannabis owner and, biz- and have a se- successful cannabis business and the taxes are crippling me, right? So you can only imagine what it's going to do to a social equity applicant who don't got no money as is, or is borrowing money, or has to give away equity in their business just so they can get some money. And then they finally make a little bit of profit, and then it goes right away in taxes. So those two things are the two major things that are crippling this program.
0: You know, I'm so interested to get your perspective, because you've been on both sides. You've been in the illicit market, and now you're in the legal market. And what I hear from a lot of entrepreneurs is, you know, they're getting undercut by the illicit market because we're making it, the government is making it so hard to have a legitimate business. I mean, you just said you pay 40% tax. You can barely stay above water and you're a successful company, right? So what do you think we should do better? Like we talked about what we could do better with social equity. What can we just do better for cannabis entrepreneurs and what can cannabis entrepreneurs fight for to have a, you know, to be able to combat an illicit market that's very vibrant and maybe probably more profitable even than the legal market it's certainly in the state of California.
1: Yeah, I mean the first thing they got the first thing that needs to happen is they need to let us market on a national level. That could help commercials. We can't even you can't really even post anything on Instagram, you know, these days without the post being taken down. So, we can't even post the positives. We can't post, you know, we can't make the consumer aware of products, products that could potentially help them so we can drive more consumers to these retail locations right? So that's one thing that needs, that, that needs to happen. Another thing that needs to happen, again, is the pricing. The pricing is so high in a dispensary because of the taxes. By the time it gets to the consumer, an eighth could be anywhere from 50 to $75 out the door, right? When it came into the shop at 20 bucks. But once the dispensary puts their markup on it, and then once, the, once, the, once, the, once the, uh, the taxes get implemented every time it's touched, touched through the supply chain, well, now the product is three times as high. Well, not everybody can afford a $60, $75 eighth of weed to, 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 to smoke or, or to buy. And so now what happens? So now they have to go and they have to get a lower quality product. This product may not even do the job. So, I mean, it's this ongoing cycle that's perpetuating just the black market. OK, forget it. I'm not even going to go in there because I need to get some medicine that's going to work or if I'm, or if I am using it for recreational purpose, I want, I actually want to be high for a certain amount of time. So I need to get something that's of quality. So rather than going to the dispensary and pay all these taxes and pay $75, I'm just going to call my boy down the street who I know sells weed, get the same product. Yeah. I don't get the testing label, but people have been smoking weed for the past 60 years without testing, without testing labels and no, and nothing's happened to anyone. So the consumer is more apt to go that direction than to go walk into a store and pay for it.
0: Unfortunately, things have happened to people, you know, with the vape gate and stuff. Sometimes when you do go into illicit markets. Yes, market, that, you're... yeah, that, that part too, yeah. But I know what you mean. I mean, for the most part, up until very recently, it wasn't, it wasn't monitored and people were fine. And it, it's like, we're overdoing it. Do you think national legalization will help a lot of the problems that you're encountering now or will it just continue? Because I know you've, you told me when I, we first met that you thought it was going to go legal fairly soon, like nationally.
1: It, I did. I now have mixed reviews on that. I do feel just, and just watching the market mature and the industry mature. Here's what I think. If it goes nationally, le- if it goes nationally legal and the taxes still aren't fixed, then it's not going to fix the problem. Right. So you can legalize it in every state that you want to. If you don't fix the taxes on it, is that that's not going to that's not going to fix the problem. The black market is still going to thrive. So, but do I think you have a chance of getting rid of the black market if you nationally legalize 1 million percent? But you got to do it all. You know, you can't just give a bunch of scholarships to a bunch of athletes and not and not do the resources part or have a broken system. You got to fix everything. You got to fix everything in order for it to work. The moment guys can go right into their state, go into the dispensary and buy themselves a $20 or $30 good eighth of cannabis that actually does its job, then I think you're, and you don't limit them of how much they can buy because you don't limit us on how much alcohol we can buy. I can go in there and buy buy the whole, as many bottles of wine or as many bottles of Hennessy or beers that I want. You can't put a limit on it. Once you do that, then you will see the, 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 black market get crippled because why, what is it there for? I don't need, why am I going to go run the risk of doing a black market deal with you when I can go into the dispensary and buy the same, just as much
0: product as right, I want. And for just the same amount of price. And it's a more, it's a nicer for experience the same
1: amount of price and it went through testing. So I know I'm going to be okay. I know I ain't got to worry about no fentanyl in my product. I ain't got to worry about no messed up vape cart. I ain't got to wor- worry about no jacked up hardware. That's putting all kind of uh, heavy metals in my lungs. No, that's how you fix it. Right.
0: Do you think the black market is really the single biggest threat to the legal market? Or is it like what's been the biggest challenge for your company in terms of
1: I don't think the black market is the biggest threat. I think pharma is the biggest <laughs> is the biggest threat. <laughs> I, I think my Masanto is the biggest threat. No, I'm
0: just kidding. But it's interesting. Well, they haven't even gotten into the business yet, so we'll see. You know, I mean not really. I mean, I guess in the C B D business they're they're touching it and, and I know that they're, they're doing some stuff in the drink space, but no, but what is the biggest like what do you what you mentioned taxes, you mentioned some what is the thing that has been the hardest for you to navigate cuz you've been on both sides of the business?
1: The hardest thing the hardest thing to navigate right now is just the moving target of of the rules, right? And some of the legislation, maybe, you know, little things like it's not so much the 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 consumer, right? The consumer is fickle. The consumer is wishy-washy, but they've always been like that, even in the traditional market. One year, one strain is popular, the next, the next year it's not. So I'm used to that. I'm used to this is how the cannabis industry works, right? The consumer gets tired of certain things. What's more challenging for us is the, the simple fact that when we need to get something done, let's say one of my AC blows out or a new HVAC system comes in or comes out, and I want to change my HVAC system at my facility. Well, I can't let's say I I don't want to use fuel burning or CO2 burning CO2 gas burners anymore. And I want to use just pure CO2 from a tank. I can't just change it without drawing it on the plans, submitting the plans to the state, to the city, going through building and state. that shit takes weeks. By the time the inspector comes, the plants are dead. Whatever I was trying to fix. I can no longer I can't fix it that fast. So what do you do? You have to make a you have to make a business call at that point. Do I just change it and save my crop and save my $150,000 cuz that's what my room is worth? Or do I just let it die and wait for the inspector to get here and wait for building and safety to push my product, to push my application up to the top till I get an answer? It's things like that as an operator that drive us freaking crazy, right? Because we can't we you know these these plants are living. They're they're living living organisms, right? So what are we supposed to do? I got to make sure that my consumer gets the best product possible. I can't do that if I can't keep my room environment correct. If I, if I have to wait two months to get an answer from building and safety, because I need to make a change to make sure that I'm producing the best product. So that's the whole thing where the, where the priority registration comes into play. In college, as an athlete, we didn't stand in the same line the regular students stood in. We got in the athlete line where there was no one in that line because we had to get whatever we need to get done quick so we can get to practice. It needs to be the same with cannabis, right? And when the sit, when the government figures out how this plant actually works, they'll understand there needs to be a priority for them. There needs to be a fast track li- line over here. You know, we need to be listening to them. How Take black market guys like myself and say, how do we fix this? Lower the tax?
0: Yeah, there's so much that needs to be done. I mean, I'm glad you're there fighting the fight and being uh, open about it and at least, you know, voicing these concerns and still having success. Let's end on a positive note. What is your advice to... People getting into this industry. What do you tell people? I'm sure you meet them every day. You meet somebody, oh, I want to get into cannabis because, you know, I can make a lot of money. You're like, yeah, right. But what would be an encouraging bit of advice that you would give to or they, that you have given to p- people coming up that want to get into the industry? If
1: you if you want to get into the space, first of all, know what part of the space you want to get into. Right. Do you want to get into cultivation? Do you want to get into picks and shovels? Do you want to get into ancillary items or things in the space? Know which parts you want to get into. Second of all, if you don't have passion for this space, do not come into it. Because you're going to fail, right? No matter what space, no matter what part of the space you go into, if you don't love it, you're going to fail because it's going to be work. You're not going to just create a brand and start growing this year and you're going to have a successful cannabis brand by next year. It doesn't work that way. You're not going to be able to open up a dispensary and you've never opened up one before and people are just going to come because it's weed. It doesn't work that way. There's a culture here that's alive and well. There are the governors and the godfathers of the culture that will shut you down in a heartbeat if you're not of the culture or that will block you. There's politics in it, just like there's politics in any other business that you try to get yourself into. So understand that. Understand you got to put in your 10,000 hours if you want to have some success in this space. And if you do, if you have been an avid smoker, if you've been trying to grow for the past five or six years and you just can't figure it out and you want to learn at a higher level, Go intern with somebody, go find a company, do your research on a company that you believe in. You believe in their product. You believe in what they stand for and go intern with them for free because it ain't like a bunch of cannabis companies got all this money to pay you. Everyone thinks we do, but we don't, right? Because it's going to, we're paying it in our taxes. The government's taking it. So that would be my advice.
0: Chris, this has been fascinating. I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for sharing all this wisdom with us and for sharing your incredible story with us. I appreciate it best of luck. If people want to find out more about Ball Family Farms, is there a website they should go to? What should they What should they do?
1: Yeah. If you want to find us, you can find us at www.ballfamilyfarms.com. You can find us on Instagram at at Ball Family Farms. You can find me, the CEO with the big smile at at Chris Ball45. And that's us, man. Thank you, Mr. Jake Smalls, for letting me tell my story
0: and have me on the show, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Chris. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com. Or check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now, that's W-R-I-T-E, to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's writeaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode... We'll THC you later.